Faith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. This is the podcast for Multi-Faith Matters, and I am the host, John Moorhead, and we have another installment in our mini-series uh, looking at things in relation to the uh, release of the Pentagon uh, UFO report, and today I'm privileged to have as a guest Professor Benjamin Zeller, and uh, Dr. Zeller, I'm just going to read your bio here that I, I found, and if you want to update it or add something or whatever, we can do that. Um, Dr. Zeller is a researcher and teacher of religion in America. He focuses on uh, religious currents that are new or alternative, including new religions, the religious engagement with science, and one that sounds fascinating to me, especially the quasi-religious relationship people have with food, which uh, sounds fascinating. Uh, Dr. Zeller serves as assistant professor of religion at Lake Forest College, a private liberal arts college in suburban Chicago. He's the author, editor, and co-editor of a number of books, uh, related to our discussion today, he's the author of Heaven's Gate, America's UFO Religion, and he's the editor of a relatively new handbook of UFO religions. Dr. Yes. Seller, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I have uh, followed your work. Uh, I've done work for years uh, in new religious movements, and uh, there are a handful of scholars that, that I find especially fascinating as their research dovetails with my own interests, and, and you are one of those scholars. Um, as I said, uh, when I we were uh, when I was introducing the bio, mm-hmm. the Pentagon recently released uh, a report on UFOs, or I guess they're trying to introduce new terminology now, perhaps to move away from the stigma, unidentified aerial phenomenon, UAPs. Mm-hmm. Um, so your conversation today has some connection to that. Um, on a personal note, how out of all the things you could study and research and write about as a professor working in new religions, how did UFO religions come to be both a personal and professional interest for you? Great question. Uh, so I suppose it, um, it actually was, was through Heaven's Gate, the UFO group that I wrote the, my, my book about. Uh, so to step you back in time, uh, for um, the viewers, uh, listeners who maybe aren't familiar with Heaven's Gate, it was um, probably the most important American UFO religion. Um, and it ended in 1997 with the, with the mass suicide in San Diego. It was very flashy, got all of our attention at the time. They were wearing Nike sneakers. They had these purple shrouds. There was a comet overhead. It was, it was the, the national news. Um, this was in 1997. Uh, I was a college student then. So I was taking a course on, uh, on millennialism and messianism. I forget what the title of the course was, but it was taught by a lovely old Jesuit fellow. Uh, and he was focusing on ancient and medieval millennialism and messianism. And here right in front of me, the Heaven's Gate mass suicides occurred. Um, metaphorically in front of me, I was in New York, they were in San Diego. Um, and, and the media coverage, I immediately, I was reading the media coverage and, and I went to the, the there's a group that had a website. They're one of the first new religions popular with a website. So I went to their website and I read the materials. And it was clear to me what I was looking at was present day millennialism and messianism. But the media coverage just sort of simply dismissed them as a bunch of crazies. And I thought, as it, with the hubris that only a 19 year old or 20 year old could have, well, obviously I can do better. <laughs> so 
So I ended up writing a term paper at the group and sort of stuck with it over time. I didn't even know you could study new religions, but I sort of fell into it. Um, and I think I've always wanted to understand uh, groups which are portrayed as different or crazy. Um, I think that pathologizing them is, is not uh, a good first step. Uh, not to dismiss that, I mean, that there may be people with mental illness within new religions. There may be people with mental illness outside of new religions. I mean, I, so I don't want to dismiss that that may be present, but that should not be our first step. Our first step to when we encounter something which is unusual, strange, even concerning or frightening should not be to assume they're either crazy or evil, but rather to try to understand what they're about. And then of course, after we understand it, we can decide what we feel. But um, that, that's sort of what brought me into it. Uh, so they were the first UFO group and then, um, then I suppose I just started sort of collecting and studying more. Uh, and uh, I fell into the study of new religious movements that way. And I've been doing it really ever since, so since 1997. Well, it's it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, the, the stigma that's often, there, there's just this cult template. And I thought we had moved beyond it. Um, but with, uh, you know, the, the rise of Trump, um, you've got at least one book out attributing that to, you know, the old uh, mind control paradigm. And we just want to dismiss, it seems like we want to use it as a dismissive label and concept for, for anybody we don't like and don't agree with that they're just cultists, right? Would, would you agree with that assessment? Absolutely. Isn't it useful language? Because it means I don't have to take it seriously. I, I wrote an op-ed, um, sort of a little academic op-ed about this, about um, people using the language of, of cults uh, and brainwashing to talk about uh, Trump and Trumpism. Um, and I should put my cards on the table and say, I, I'm a liberal. I don't, I don't agree with Trump. However, I'm very, very critical of both liberals and conservatives who use this language as, of cult and brainwashing as a way to dismiss as opposed to try to understand, it's very easy and it's very comforting to say, well, someone voted for Trump, they're part of a cult, they're brainwashed. It's much harder to, to try to figure out why were they doing that? Why did it make sense to them to do something which I consider abhorrent, but they consider central to their identity? I mean, when I look at a particular political movement, I might see nationalism, xenophobia, racism. How come they look at it and see something else? Right. And that's, it's challenging to do that. So it's easier to say, well, they're brainwashed. And I think with religion and then really anything, as you pointed out, I mean, the, I, you Google something you don't like and, and chances are someone's going to call it a cult. <laughs> so right, right. It's very easy to do so. We don't, have to, we don't have to engage it that way. We can just simply dismiss them as crazy or brainwashed. Um, you know, the, the language of drinking the Kool-Aid, which is, of course, a reference oh, yeah. to the Jonestown, um, is used in that, in that same way, right? So if you don't like what someone's doing, well, they drink the Kool-Aid. Um, we don't have to take seriously why they're committed to an ideology or a practice we find disturbing if we dismiss it that way. N not to say at the end of the day that I think these things are, are good. I mean, I did, you know, into politics, religions. I mean, we can, we can not like things or reject them or think they're wrong or even evil without necessarily dismissing them as a cult. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> I think the only, perhaps the only other term that's used in a similar way that I see repeatedly is labeling a particular president Hitler. Oh yeah. The, the followers Nazis. You know, we, we go to, the, there are these go-to concepts and terms and unfortunately they just keep coming up. Uh, and they're not very helpful, particularly in our polarized moment in American culture. Uh, it shuts down discourse because a cult is defined as an illegitimate religion and Hitler is defined as an illegitimate, right? So you can't, uh, you, you, once something is defined as a cult, there, there's no way to, to engage it in a meaningful way. Um, 
Here, I'll, 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 this is an actual sort of ethnographic note. Um, I spent many years studying uh, the Hare Krishnas um, and I was studying a Hare Krishna community and I'd spent, I don't know, three or four years, uh, maybe two or three on and off visiting. And I was pretty, um, had a pretty good relationship with the leaders there. And at one point I said, hey, did you ever get invited to the interfaith gatherings around here? There's a lot of churches and synagogues around where we were. And, <laughs> and you, you know, I'd been there long enough where the, the leader was able to make a joke. He started laughing. He said, Ben, they think we're a cult. They're never going to invite us to an interfaith gathering. Um, I mean, then, but that's what it is. But you don't invite a cult to an interfaith gathering, right? So that's, they're defined as an illegitimate religion. So that's, that's the power of the language. Yeah, I've been involved for years in, uh, rather than, than interfaith, I, I use the term multi-faith because we're, okay. we're not just looking for commonalities. We're also concerned about differences and trying to navigate rather than ignore those. But uh, doing that uh, from a religious community with members of new religious movements, I often get stigmatized that you're, you're legitimizing them, they're evil, they're satanic, and, and therefore you they're the object of either shunning or evangelism or something. Make them us, and then it's okay. Yeah. But to have a conversation and retain difference uh, is simply a no-go area. So yeah, it's it's tough working in this in the field of new religious movements. Now I found uh, an article of yours that was uh, really interesting uh, at the nexus of science and religion, UFO religions, and it was uh, from Religion Compass. Uh, in your bio, it says that you're you're interested. One of your research areas is the intersection between science and religion. Um, some uh, in the academy would say those two don't mix. I find the the, the this combination uh, of interest and fascinating and important, particularly as it relates to UFO religions. Can you talk about how that comes together? Yeah, yeah. I should say it's so actually my my dissertation topic many years ago. I did my um, PhD at University of North Carolina Chapel Hill was on uh, new religious movements in science, and I was looking at the way in which 20th century new religious movements, so really in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, were engaging um, science uh, as in their intellectual work. I was less interested in the sociology of the new religions than I was in sort of the content and what were they actually saying. And one of the arguments I had there was that in the 20th century, at least, uh, late 20th century, uh, new religions had to engage science because science was, was central to our society. Science was central to our civilization. Science is central to, to who we are as, as a culture. Um, so all the new religions I was looking at were engaging and responding to science in particular ways, but, but recognizing there's, there's problems with religion and science. Um, so all of the, the new religions were tweaking the relationship between religion and science. Uh, so they were looking at either redeveloping that relationship or champion one or the other or redefining one or the other. Uh, so my argument was basically that you, you can't be a new religion today without engaging science. It's just, it's, it's central to who we are as people. Um, now, older religions, of course, predate the rise of modern science. So they don't have to. I mean, you don't, you know, the Catholic Church does not have to engage science, although it really, it really ought to, given the long history. <laughs> um, so, uh, so old religions do it too. It's just new religions really have to, because if you're, if you're starting today, you really, have, you can't, it's the elephant in the room. You can't ignore science and technology. Um, and particularly, I was looking at sort of post um, uh, post World War II, so post bomb. You know, you can't you can't live in the modern atomic age and not deal with you know the, the atomic shadow. Uh, and you know, if you've read or if you heard about Paul Boyer's book, uh, I forget the name of the title. The historian looking at American culture post bomb, and that really shaped everything. Um, so uh, religion and science as a broad category, yeah, I, I find absolutely fascinating. Uh, I actually teach a class on it. It's one of my most popular classes. I get a lot of um, pre-med and sort of science-oriented students to take the class. And um, they, they come in 
assuming there's a conflict between religion and science. And uh, one of the things I try to emphasize in the course is that conflict is just one way to think about the relationship. And there's many ways to think about the relationship between religion and science. It isn't always conflict. That isn't to say that conflict doesn't exist. It, it does, but there's, there's other ways to engage and think about the topic as well. Uh, so for those who are familiar with, with Ian Barber's work, for example, Ian Barber said there's four main ways. There's um, conflict, certainly. Uh, there's independence. So um, Stephen Jay Gould, the famous um, uh, scientist, uh, talked about what he called NOMA, non-overlapping magisteria. Science, magisteria is just something you teach about. So science teaches about one set of things, religion teaches about another set of things. They're independent. Um, and then Barber himself championed, um, uh, let's see, he called it, uh, yeah, I think integration and, and dialogue, sort of bring them together. Okay. Yeah, that, that's helpful. It's a fascinating article. I'll, I'll include uh, in the program notes a link to that article as, as well as your book so folks can uh, hopefully seek those out. Oh, um, yeah. Stephen Jay Gould is up online. I mean, he's, uh, I don't know the copyright status, but you can easily find it online. Okay, yeah, great. Um, as you know, the modern UFO phenomenon typically goes back to 1947 with Kenneth Arnold seeing the, the skipping disks near Mount Rainier. How far does uh, the UFO religions go? Is it, is it an extension of the modern UFO phenomenon? You know, it's interesting. So when uh, when I was editing this book, you mentioned in the intro, um, a book I just edited came out. It's the uh, Handbook of UFO Religions published by Brill. I should note before anyone goes out to try to order it, it's, it's very expensive. It's meant for libraries. It's a reference right. book. So right. if you want to read it, ask your library to order a copy. <laughs> no one, don't, don't drop 200 bucks on this. Ask your library to do it. Um, but uh, some of the chapters in there were looking at very ancient forms of sort of thinking about, uh, about religion and, and the sky and objects in the sky. So if we have a sort of a very loose definition of a UFO as anything coming out of the sky, which is unusual or unknown or can't be explained. Well, I mean, sometimes people talk about uh, Ezekiel's chariot, for example, as sort of a proto-UFO and Ezekiel's vision is sort of a proto-UFO. Um, there's Hindu Vimaya. Uh, as I believe they're called, um, which are sort of flying objects that the, associated with the deities. Um, there was, oh, pardon me. Um, there was a, a Jewish mystic in the Middle Ages who had visions of sort of these, these things coming down from heaven. Uh, so you, you have all sorts of, well, strictly speaking, unidentified flying objects. I mean, that's what they, they were, um, but not with this sort of extraterrestrial angle, really. The extraterrestrial angle really is starts in the 19th century. You have some uh, sort of within esotericism and occultism, you start to have visions of sort of uh, Martians and Venetians and things like that. So that's really when it starts to come together is what we would today call UFO religion. But very broadly, I suppose you could say people are looking to the sky forever. And, um, and certainly there's, um, uh, if, if you know popular ufology, uh, the work of like um, Eric von Donegan and such, claiming that uh, all religions are basically based on, on UFO engagement. I mean, that's uh, so. There's a long history of that, those sort of claims. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a child of the 1970s, and sure, yeah. uh, I had a heavy. I imbibed quite a bit in pop culture. I don't know how many documentaries and pseudo documentaries I saw. You know, uh, many times hosted by uh, Rod Serling. Of Twilight oh, yeah. Zone fame, which for me as a Twilight Zone fan gave it gravitas. Sure. And, uh, yeah, there was all, all kinds of things. It was just in the culture. I, I, I was a member of uh, MUFON oh, uh, yeah. back in the 1970s. So um, UFOs and the paranormal have been an, an area of personal interest and then later academic interest. And it's interesting to see that that evolution and, you know, UFO religions. Can you can you talk to um some notable UFO religions, past and present. What kinds of groups are we talking about? 
Sure, sure. And actually, I, if I can mention something else, you, you yes. mentioned MUFON. I have a new article coming out on MUFON, actually, on the use, oh, okay. of, religious, use of religious language within uh, MUFON, um, the MUFON journal. Um, oh, wow. The way in which MUFON, which is very secular and very scientific, mm-hmm. nevertheless, many many of the the, the, the people writing in the not many some of the people writing in the journal um, would use this sort of language of of the numinous, uh, this language of sort of the the religious experience to describe um, the UFOs. And I'm I'm arguing in, in this forthcoming article that you really can't extricate religion from ufology. Mm-hmm. That under the surface, ufology is sort of imbued with sort of this quest for the transcendent and um, and and meaning. Um, yeah. but, can, can I ask a follow-up question in relation to that before the other question? Yeah. Uh, it, it's interesting when the, the report came out or when the news came out that it was going to come out, media immediately started with the, the polarization, either the true believers or the, the skeptics. It was interesting. Skeptics were, you know, uh, presuming they had a, a, an ability to debunk what mm-hmm. presumably the military didn't have the ability to debunk, which seemed strange to me. But the so-called true believer paradigm, we, we automatically fall back to that nuts and bolts, extraterrestrial visitors. Uh, but how does that then naturally almost lead to uh, kind of the, the savior from the skies that, that looking to it as a source of transcendence? I, th- I mean, again, that's why I think it's, it's hard to separate ufology from, from religiosity, even when it's not explicit, it's implicit, because often there is that sort of messianic millennial role of, of the extraterrestrial. They've come to save us. Uh, they've come to prevent a nuclear holocaust. They've come to teach us about ourselves. There's, there's this idea that they come from on high to give us knowledge or help or something. And that, I mean, that looks, that acts like a religion I should throw in there a couple of asterisks. I suppose um, it, it's not supernatural. So if, if your understanding of, of, of religion depends on the supernatural, often I mean, that's you know that's sort of the dividing block here. But um, then again, um, faster than light travel and uh, being able to to have these technological you know miracles and things like that. Um, the line between what is supernatural and just high-tech science is is a thin and wavy one. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke, of course, famously, well, this is his quip that uh, um, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Uh, same with with uh, with the miracle as well. Um, so I, I think you're right to, to point to that uh, to that sort of the way in which there's sort of a salvific role within the UFO, and it does start to look quite a bit like religion. I would agree. Now, I, so now that I've given you a follow-up question, to the, the other question I asked, I, I think folks are probably will be familiar with things like Heaven's Gate. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But 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 what are some other prominent UFO religions of the past they may not have heard of, and and what are some contemporary ones? Sure. Uh, well, the other main contemporary one uh, that that some of your our listeners and viewers might have heard of would be the Raelian movement. Okay. Uh, they're primarily francophone. Uh, so they're out of France and Quebec. Uh, they're actually very similar to Heaven's Gate in terms of looking to the Bible and trying to read the Bible through the lens of ufology. So they have an entire retelling of Genesis where the, the, the God of Genesis is simply an extraterrestrial, which is the same thing Heaven's Gate did basically. So in um, for the Raelians, the, the race of the extraterrestrials are called the Elohim. So if you've ever read the, the, the Bible in, in Hebrew or, or a direct translation, Elohim is, is a name for the divine. Uh, so whenever it says this this proper name for the divine, they they really and say, well, this is the, the race of space aliens, uh, and the, the Jehovah is a particular one of them. Um, so they're also like Heaven's Gate. They're sort of Christian in orientation, where they're taking the Bible and rereading it as every every time you have God, just substitute space alien. You have the same basic story. 
um, up to Revelation. I mean, so Revelation is just the end, but it's the same thing. So instead of God, it's just space aliens. Um, so there's sort of the other big one. Um, there's um, there's a number of active um, groups that, that channel space aliens. So their founders don't claim they're in communication with space aliens uh, directly, like interpersonal, like face to face. But whether that's um, space aliens, extraterrestrials are able to be uh, to be channeled to, to enter into their consciousness, and they can speak for them. Uh, Jay Z Knights, around the movement, probably one of the most uh, famous of those. Uh, but there's others as well. There were competing channels for the Seth uh, movement, the Seth entity. Uh, and uh, usually the claims are these beings are from different constellations or planets in outer space, and they bring sort of wisdom and teaching. Um, these are diffuse movements because they usually have one channeler and a whole bunch of books. And then maybe you have book clubs, people who buy the books and talk amongst themselves, but not a social movement in this sense of like Heaven's Gate or, or the Raelians, you know, for a you, know, you said you're a sociologist. I mean, for a sociologist, those are movements that have organizations, institutions, things you can study more easily. Um, the channelers tend to be, um, uh, well, to use uh, Rodney Stark's old model, that, um, those are the um, uh, the audience cults or, or the client cults, they're called, you know, where the, there's the one central figure and they sort of publish stuff and send it out. Um, there are older um, UFO religions that are still around. Um, Arthurius um, and Unarius are sort of tottering, but still with us. Aetherius is a British one, um, and uh, Unarius is, is based out of California. Um, those were started really at the very beginning of the space age. So they're, um, um, they're down to very few members. Um, I would say the Raelians are the group which has the most active members. Heaven's Gate is defunct, of course. Yes, uh, uh, the Raelians are a fascinating group. Uh, I did my uh, graduate thesis on Burning Man Festival, and I, I had to do some uh, participant observations, so I went out to Burning Man. It was a surreal experience in general, but one particular moment was I ran into a small encampment with members of the Raelian religious group, and uh, they were not only enjoying the, the hedonistic expressionism of Burning Man Festival, but I also think they were doing a little recruiting and I'll never oh, yeah. forget having a conversation about Raelian religion with two topless Raelian women. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it was it was interesting to say the least. But they're known for that. Yeah, they're 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 known. I mean, in addition to their UFO stuff, they're known for uh, giving out um, free condoms in the street in front of Catholic churches and things like that. They're very um, sex positive, sex oriented, and um, hedonistic, as you said. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I'm I'm wondering about the role of abduction uh the phenomenon uh, ha hasn't there been at least one ufo religion where the founder claimed that he was not not as we think of abduction today with kidnap involuntary kidnapping uh forced experimentation those kinds of things but almost a, a willful scoop up and and given a tour and then uh higher information is imparted so aren't these almost proto-abduction kinds of experiences in some of these UFO religions? Yeah, well, actually, and, and, and um, the Raelians are a good example of that, where um, uh, uh, Rael, the, the founder, claimed that he was, again, a, a, abducted sort of in a, in, in a nice way. He was taken right. aboard a UFO and given a tour. Um, yeah, and, and there are um, older, uh, older new religions like that, too. Usually, it's for most new religions, it, it's not physically. For most, it's um, astral projection or it's, it's channeling. There's relatively few where the founder claims to have physically gotten onto a UFO and physically gone somewhere else. Um, yeah, I think sort of the, the, the antecedent, sort of the origin 
for, for many of these, if you go back to what is actually the 18th century, would be uh, Emanuel Swedenborg, like Swedenborg's visions. So his were, were dreams, but in his dreams, he went to other planets. In his dreams, he was able to sort of engage. Uh, I have to look at it. I, I think they were Venetians, uh, but they were, they were extraterrestrials not Venetians, Martians, <laughs> they're one or the other. Uh, but he was able to sort of send his consciousness out of his body. And that becomes sort of the model, particularly in the 19th century, um, you know, before space flight, um, that, that was very much a standard. Once you have space flight, it becomes possible to, to envision actually getting on board one of these in the mid 20th century. You start to have more of these visions of actually getting onto a UFO and sailing off. Again, rails is probably the best example. Um, let's see. Uh, I think the founder of Unarius actually uh, claimed that he got on a UFO as well. I'd have to look it up. Um, they're relatively rare. Again, usually it's the UFO, the, the, the aliens come to them, not they go to the aliens. Uh, well, that, that's a helpful distinction. Um, I mentioned in the, uh, as I read your bio, that one of your books looked at uh, Heaven's Gate. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that you were in college when that happened. I vividly remember Heaven's Gate. At that time in my life, I was doing the... Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the different paradigms. I was doing the evangelical countercult approach to religions. And so I remember walking into home we had a website up and I got a phone call and it was a reporter wanting me to immediately give forth wisdom on this. And I had no idea what was going on. So I'm trying to provide commentary from this paradigm while watching the news reports that are unfolding right in front of me. And uh, so it, it was a fascinating time. It was a fascinating group in that it has a UFO religion, it combines UFO mythology with Star Trek science fiction elements, Christian apocalyptic elements. H how did it come to scoop up and draw upon uh, all these various elements to create something new? Well, so to tell the story of Heaven's Gate, or to answer that question, to tell the story yes. of Heaven's Gate. Um, so uh, it, it's a astute question because it's, uh, it, we should note that part of the, the media confusion was how do you take seriously a group which seems to incorporate all the stuff? It's one thing if a group is just based on you know Christian prophetic tradition, you can sort of you know pigeonhole it. You know what it is. It's one thing if it looks like just UFOs. It's when you have both and you have Star Trek and you have X Files and everything else. Um, well, so Heaven's Gate was founded by by two people, uh, Marshall Herf Applewhite and Bonnie Lou Nettles, and they each brought their religious interests into it. Uh, Applewhite uh, was the son of a Presbyterian minister, and he briefly went to seminary. Uh, so he had a, a very sort of uh, Christian background. He was deeply uh, familiar with the Bible. Uh, and although he ended up reading it through the lens of, of the UFOs, uh, nevertheless, sort of there was, there, there, Christianity sort of never left the center of his vision. So when push came to shove, he would go back to the Bible. Um, Bonnie Lou Nettles, although she, she had sort of a, a vague Christian Baptist background, in fact, was more into theosophy. She was a member of the, the Theosophical Society of America, interested in what we would call today the New Age movement. She was a channeler, so she believed she could channel the spirits of space aliens or the deceased, and she was an astrologer. So she was uh, part of sort of that, that subculture. And you put them together, and that helps explain why, why do you have the Bible, but also you have space aliens? Why do you have channeling? Because the heavens get accepted channeling as well. Um, it, it partially it's from the two members, but then also it's from um, the, the two founders, also from the members. Um, Heaven's Gate, although it was founded by two people and led by two people, actually uh, a lot of the ideas percolated up from, from the membership. Uh, so Applewhite himself had no interest in science fiction. In fact, he committed the cardinal sin for sci-fi fans. I'm a sci-fi fan. The cardinal sin is he confused Star Wars and Star Trek. You never do that. And he did it because he's just not a fan. But members 
because this was a group about you know UFOs and about uh, and cutting tech, cutting edge technology. He attracted a bunch of sci-fi fans into his group, and they said, "Well, this thing, your stuff, you're teaching here looks a lot like like Star Trek." Uh, so one of the teachings, the central teachings of Heaven's Gate, is that they're going to go into outer space and become effectively. Um, effectively angels. They're going to become sort of uh, extraterrestrial angels and they're going to work together on a crew. This is the host of heaven, basically. They're going to be sort of a crew that's going to work for the divine and they're going to take care of planets and, and sort of run the affairs of the universe. And some of the sci-fi fans in the group said this looks a whole lot like Star Trek. Uh, where you have sort of a crew of a ship and they sail around and take care of the planets. Um, so a lot of that sort of filtered up from below. Uh, and also they were fans of the X-Files and fans of... Um, uh, Stargate and sort of they brought um, they brought their interest in sci-fi into it and so members of the group brought that angle. Uh, it, it, it sort of ebbed and flowed um, after uh, Bonnie Lou Nettles passed away in the 80s. She was the co-founder and Apple White was was the sole leader. I would say sort of the, the, the Christian elements became more central and in the very end in the last couple of years um, Apple White had this to an outsider, it's almost a bizarre fixation on, on the questions of predestination. Uh, only the, the son of a Presbyterian minister could be as sort of wrapped up as he was in sort of these questions of, of divine grace and predestination and about whether whether one could resist it or not. It was basically, you could see this as a man who had read the Westminster Confession and had taken it seriously and was grappling with these questions of free will and choice and destiny. Um, and as I said, I don't think Christianity ever really left the center of the movement. I think he was still engaging it. But that's how it ended up the way it did. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating uh, religious group to, to study, uh, regardless of your opinion on uh, UFOs. Uh, I, I encourage folks to, to seek out your book. Um, you also edited the Handbook of UFO Religions, and as you noted, it's more of an academic volume. I would encourage folks to get it through interlibrary loan, which is what I do for a lot of the expensive stuff. Um, what I like about it is it has a global focus. It discusses new religions focused around UFOs, and it also has an interdisciplinary approach to the subject matter. Can you, can you tell us a little about how it came about and what you were trying to accomplish with it? Yeah, you know, it's um, it came about because I have a I have my UFO shelf at work where you know I'm I keep getting asked to write sort of chapters and and, and articles on, on UFO religion because there's relatively few of us who focus on it and the number of books on the topic is 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 relatively few and they're getting pretty old. Um, so Christopher Partridge has a great edited collection, but it's got to be 15 years old by now. Uh, Jim Lewis has a great one too, but that's got to be 20 years old by now. Um, and there's a couple of anthropologists who, who have some nice collections as well. Uh, one, I'm blanking on their names, but there's at least two anthropologists who've worked on the topic. But all these books are getting a little old. And I thought, well, I keep citing these old books. And wouldn't it be great if, if we were able to have a new one that brought together cutting edge scholarship on not just the, the new groups, but new focuses on the old groups as well. Uh, so, for example, Mikhail Rothstein writes a chapter for the for the for the handbook on um, the Arthurius Society, which is an old group, but he's taking a new approach. He's taking a ritual studies approach to it. Uh, so he brings sort of a, a new focus to sort of the way that ritual works within this movement. Uh, so that's really where it came from. Is I emailed um, I emailed sort of the twenty or thirty people I knew who were working in, in the sub in the subject area and said I want to put together a book. Are you interested? What are you working on? Um, and then I found some other folks too. I sort of emailed around and I, I used social media and there were some, some young scholars uh, uh, who, were, uh, who were just starting off, uh, who got engaged in the project as well. Um, 
There's a, a younger scholar from Sweden who works on um, UFO uh, from a folklorist angle. So folklorist who's so looking at UFO folklore and the way in which um, ideas about uh, UFOs and, and visitations and abductions spread through folklore. So that's a great new addition to the scholarship. Uh, so it's, I'm really, really proud of it. It's, it's the work of um, uh, several years. And of course it was during the pandemic, so everything got slowed down. So it should have been out you know, a year ago, but uh, we got to it eventually. Well, it's a great book. Uh, it, I encourage folks to pick it up. Um, would you say without rendering a judgment on whether or not the UFO phenomenon is real, um, it, does it, doesn't it function as a contemporary mythology, even a religious mythology for us? I think it does. I, th I think there is a, um, a strong mythic element to it. And in some ways, I go back to actually the work of Carl Jung. I mean, Jung pointed out that um, the UFO is, is, is the modern myth, right? And I, I, I butcher the German if I try to say it, but that's a direct translation. U the UFOs are a modern myth. Um, and he wasn't thinking myth as in something which is fake. I mean, anyone who studies, studies Jung knows how important he took the idea of myth. M myth is what gives meaning to our lives. Um, and so he wasn't being dismissive. Uh, and I think it's easy, we, so we should caution, say we don't mean myth as in dismissive. We mean myth as in, it's really important. Um, it, it gives meaning, it, it explains, it's the symbols we live by. Um, yeah, I mean, we live in a world defined by science and technology, but also defined by religion. Uh, I think that one of the great mistakes of 20th century scholarship was the secularization model. Um, our society has not secularized. Uh, we are not a secular society. Yes, if you mean it in the very strict sense of religion has less influence in governments, then you can look at particular places where that's true. But as a whole, we are not a secular people. Um, so religion is central, but so is science, so is technology. And I think UFO religions are bringing the two together. Uh, just one final question here in relation to kind of ending where we started here, uh, that we have this conversation in regards to the, the report that the Pentagon released. Um, with the renewed interest in UFOs, do you think that this will somehow revitalize UFO religions? What is your opinion of that? You know, I, I read the, the UFO report and it's about nine pages of nothing, I have to say. Um, it's, uh, I don't think it's gonna satisfy um, anyone in terms of answers. What it does is keep the conversation going um, because what the government basically said in my reading of the least is, yeah, there's things we can't account for and we can't account for them. <laughs> That's pretty much it. And I, I remember it listed four or five different possibilities that they're, it's you know, terrestrially made by, by us, our allies. It's terrestrially made by our enemies. It's sort of radar mistakes or it's something we don't know. So there's this catch all we don't know. Right. Um, and I think that those who are, um, who are believers will seize on that, that sort of catch all that we just, um, we truly don't know. And if you are a believer, you're gonna read this report and say, look, the government spent many, many hours and, and many millions of dollars trying to figure out what these were and they couldn't answer it. And the reason they couldn't answer it is they were working within one paradigm and there's no answers within that paradigm, within the paradigm of, of terrestrial technology. And I think that believers are gonna to look to this and it's gonna it's gonna support them. So yes, I think for those who are prone to belief. Um, on the other hand, I think that a lot of the impetus and the power of UFO religions, particularly in the 1990s and 1980s, was born out of the connection of UFOlogy to conspiratorialism and the idea that there was a conspiracy to prevent the uh, knowledge of UFOs and extraterrestrials from reaching a public audience. And those who are interested in, in conspiracies now have entirely different angles to look at. Um, the rise of QAnon and sort of the way in which conspiracies have moved from the margins to the center. 
I think that ultimately will drive fewer people towards towards UFO religions. Um, it, it's a different era, you know. In 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 the 1990s, during the era of Heaven's Gate, which we're going to focus on, um, conspiracies came out of pop culture. They came out of the X Files. They came out of alien autopsy and things like that. They weren't coming out of the White House. And we live in a different era. So I I think that uh, paradoxically, although conspiracies are more front and center to our culture, I think that because of that, they're gonna filter more into politics and less into alternative religions like, like UFO religions. Mm-hmm. That's my guess. But yeah. you know, as they say, historians are not very good at predicting. So <laughs> I, I hope I'm wrong because I love to study these groups and I hope there's more that pop up. Well, one quick follow-up. I, I listened to uh, an interview with uh, Joseph Laycock. Mm. Uh, he does a lot of work in, yeah. uh, I think he might've been a contributor to your uh, UFO uh, Joe did, yeah. He contributed on um, the evangelical response to um, uh, to UFO belief and UFO religion. And one of the groups he looked at was um, uh, a group which I spent some time with in Roswell. Um, the What was their actual name? Um, they're an evangelical anti-alien abduction right, group. Right. Like the formal name of the group. Um, but uh, they believe that the aliens are, are real, but that they're demonic. And that the way to prevent abduction is to invoke Christ and drive them away. Uh, so know, it's an interesting combination between mm-hmm. UFO religion and and sort of exorcism belief, which is what Joe does. Joe has all that work on exorcism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Joe was giving an interview uh, to an interfaith podcast on his book on uh, the uh, Satanic Temple. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, he was he just relayed a personal anecdote about a friend of his that he hadn't seen for years. Who invited him to come they were going to go to the beach or somewhere and sit and meditate and uh try and uh have kind of a contactee a ufo experience so so i wonder if perhaps maybe the shift will be not so much the development of ufo groups and formal institutionalized kinds of religions but more individualized appropriation of aspects of ufo religion any response to something like that I think you're entirely right. And I think Joe's entirely right. Um, so just a few weeks ago, I happened to be visiting my parents in Colorado. We were driving down to the Great Sand Dunes National Park. And uh, I saw in my guidebook that we were driving past the UFO Watchtower. I said, we've got to go to this. <laughs> so we pulled over on the side of the road, the UFO Watchtower. And the UFO Watchtower is just that. It's a structure where you can get up and look. This beautiful place and you can look for UFOs. But there was a garden behind it where uh, people had um, had left sort of objects. It was a shrine, basically, hmm. uh, to extraterrestrial contact. And it was clear that people went there and they had left objects as part of sort of their personal spiritual identity and, and connecting it somehow to UFOs and ufology. I wouldn't call this formally a religion. There's no theology to it. There's no sort of formal ritualization. There's no institutions, but it's real for them. There's something about UFOs and spirituality and identity and practice, in this case, perhaps pilgrimage, that connects them all together. Um, So yes, I think you're right. And I think part of it is also in our, our modern internet age or social media age, you don't need a movement anymore. You know, in the 1970s, when a lot of new religious movements were forming, you needed a movement because... Uh, you could go to a used bookstore, I suppose, and pick up a book on whatever it was, but there, was, there, there wasn't social media, there wasn't the internet, there wasn't the ability to find other people who were fellow travelers. Today, there are. So, I mean, uh, well, Doug Cowens, I think, didn't he write that book about the, the online uh, pagans, right, yes. where they were able to find each other? And that book's got to be 20 years old. Cyberhenge, I think? Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's, I mean that's, that's different. So, yeah, I think if you're into to UFO spirituality, you don't have to join a group anymore. You can do it on your own. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, Dr. Zeller, I appreciate uh, you carving out the time and, and coming here and sharing your expertise. Uh, it's fascinating. It was a pleasure. I should say, and I should note, many years ago, I taught a course on, on the undead. Um, wow. I remember an article you wrote on zombies. It must yeah. be 15 years old by now, but I remember assigning that uh, to my class. Um, so it's a pleasure to sort of uh, to, to, to pay you back for that because I used that UFO article you wrote. Uh, again, it must be a decade ago. Well, well, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. It's always good to run into people who've run into your work. In fact, the very first book that I co-edited was uh, with Kim Papenroth, and it mm -hmm. was on uh, uh, Theology in the Undead. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so. Yeah, so that's, I, I used part of that book for, uh, it was um, a first year studies class I taught on, on the undead many years ago. And it was, uh, we were focusing, we, zombies were so big then. So we were using, and we used your book. I'm trying to remember, and you, a couple of essays. I, so long ago, I can't remember, but I remember we, I, I used your work then. So it's a pleasure to pay back in some way. <laughs> Thank you so much. Again, this is the uh, Multi-Faith Matters podcast. I am the host, John Moorhead, and my guest today has been Benjamin Zeller. Uh, please check the program description and notes for uh, the listing of his various books and articles and links to those, and uh, you will benefit from uh, his expertise and understanding more about UFO religions and new religious movements. Again, thanks to everyone who's watching and listening. Until the next episode.